welcome to the Gontrepreneur.com podcast. I am your host, Shango Lose. The Gontrepreneur.com podcast gives us an opportunity to speak directly to entrepreneurs, cannabis growers, product developers, and cannabis medicine researchers, all focused on making the most of cannabis normalization. As your host, I do my best to bring you original cannabis industry ideas that will ignite your own entrepreneurial spark and give you actionable information to improve your own business strategy and improve your health and the health of cannabis patients everywhere. Today, my guest is Dr. Ethan Russo. Ethan Russo is a neurologist, psychopharmacology researcher, and former senior medical advisor to GW Pharmaceuticals. He served as study physician to GW for three phase three clinical trials of Sativex. He graduated from the University of Pennsylvania and the University of Massachusetts Medical School before residencies in pediatrics in Phoenix, Arizona, and in child and adult neurology at the University of Washington in Seattle. He was a clinical neurologist in Missoula, Montana for 20 years in a practice with a strong chronic pain component. In 1995, he pursued a three-month sabbatical doing ethnobotanical research, research with indigenous peoples in Peru. He is currently past president of the International Cannabinoid Research Society and is former chairman of the International Association for Cannabinoid Medicines. He has authored several books on cannabis, cannabinoids, pharmacology, and rare botanicals, and has also published over 30 articles in neurology, pain management, cannabis, and ethnobotany. You can see his full list of books and credits at the Phytex website, where he is presently medical director. To those of you who study his work and seek out his mentorship, he is the godfather of cannabis terpene research, as well as a leader in research and popularization of the endocannabinoid system. Welcome back to the show, Ethan. Well, thank you. It's great to be back. So for those of you who are unfamiliar with the endocannabinoid system, you may want to hit pause and go back and listen to podcast episode number three, where we speak with Dr. Russo about the endocannabinoid deficiency, and he talks a lot about the ECS itself. And also, you might want to check out our recent episode with Dr. Greg Gerdeman on the popularization of the endocannabinoid system in human culture. But today, we're here to talk about Dr. Russo's new article, recently published in Trends in Pharmaceutical Science, entitled Beyond Cannabis, Plants, and the Endocannabinoid System. So Ethan, with all of that, let's start with a really solid basis for our discussion. For the folks who are not familiar with endocannabinoid system yet, um, will you just give us a brief summary to kind of get them on the same page? Sure, I'd be happy to. The endocannabinoid system, as one can tell from the name, uh, was named after cannabis. Uh, and this has to do with the fact uh, that the main psychoactive component of cannabis, tetrahydrocannabinol or THC, affects the system. So one might first wonder uh, how long it would have taken to discover this system if cannabis were not around. In any event, for a long time after THC was first uh, characterized in 1964, it was thought that it worked by altering cell membranes in the brain, something uh, like the way that alcohol works. But in fact, it turned out that THC works on a receptor called CB1, uh, that's for cannabinoid 1. So that's the main psychoactive receptor in the brain. Uh, so some of the effects that THC has uh, in making a person feel high, in reducing pain, uh, affecting uh, nausea and things like that, some of these things are mediated through this CB1 receptor. But there's also a CB2 receptor, cannabinoid 2. Now, this one uh, can occur in the brain, 
under conditions of injury or inflammation, but it's mainly out in the body where it's what's known as an immunomodulatory receptor. So it has to do with immune responses, inflammation, and pain. Uh, but those receptors are only one component of what's called the endocannabinoid system. Uh, so uh, a few years later, uh, somewhere uh, in the early 90s, it was discovered that there were endogenous cannabinoids. Endogenous means within. So it turns out that there are substances in our body that are THC-like, where uh, the that work on these receptors, CB1 and CB2. The first one that was discovered was called anandamide. Uh, that's taken from the Sanskrit word for bliss. Um, and the second is called 2-AG, 2-ericodonoglycerol. And both of these will stimulate uh, the cannabinoid receptors. Uh, then there, So we have the receptors. We have the endogenous ligands, the chemicals in our bodies that work on the receptors. And then the third component of the endocannabinoid system are the enzymes that make these endocannabinoids and break them down. So we have this triad then called the endocannabinoid system. Well, what does it do? Well, I've already mentioned uh, that this is very uh, prominent in the brain. The main activity there is in regulating neurotransmission. And I think most of the audience has probably heard of neurotransmitters. These would be things like acetylcholine uh, and uh, norepinephrine. They are the chemical signals in the brain from one nerve cell to another. What uh, CB1 does in the brain is inhibit the release of neurotransmitters. So let's say, for example, someone has chronic pain too much pain. That often goes along with uh, an excess of a neurotransmitter called glutamate, which is stimulatory. So if we have THC or anandamide that stimulates CB1 receptor, it will reduce release of uh, glutamate and uh, often act to reduce the pain. So this is just one example. Uh, however, uh, although things started there, uh, in terms of research, it turns out that the endocannabinoid system is a major homeostatic regulator of almost every physiological function in the body. Now, I realize that's a mouthful. Let's break it down. Homeostasis is a balance of function. Uh, and what the endocannabinoid system will do in any given area of the body, whether it be the brain, hormonal balance, uh, appetite, uh, digestion, is try and bring things back into balance. In other words, if there's too much of a neurotransmitter, stimulation of the endocannabinoid system will bring that down back into the range where it should be. In contrast, if there's too little activity in the system, stimulation of the endocannabinoid system will bring it up back into balance. Uh, so uh, almost any function of the body you can name is affected by the endocannabinoid system. Uh, and it uh, really points out 
the reason that cannabis is such a vers- versatile medicine for so many conditions that are otherwise very hard to treat with conventional medicines. You know, um, I was thinking about that. It, it, you know, it, the way that it regulates the system, it reminds me a lot of this vocabulary word that my acupuncturists use all the time from Chinese medif- medicine, that it, it tonifies the system. So if, if you've got an excess, it brings it down to optimum. And if you've got too little, it brings it up to optimum. So that, um, you know, essentially we're, we're creating, we're feeding a regulator for our body. So if the ECS is healthy, all of these other systems will be healthy as well. Yeah, I think that's uh, quite appropriate. And there there are many parallels between some of the concepts in traditional Chinese medicine and uh, some of what the endocannabinoid system does, Uh, right? So, so, so up until now, uh, your paper talks about how to feed and, and care the endocannabinoid system with uh, food sources that are non-cannabis. And this is a pretty big deal to everybody because up till now, we have been supplementing our endocannabinoid system, which is cannabinoids that are made in the body endogenously with cannabinoids that we have been getting from cannabis. And, you know, uh, things like uh, cannabidiol and actually, you know, most of the parts of, of the plant fall into that category. And, and now the idea that we can go to food sources for it is something that's, that's got people really excited because not only is cannabis not easily available everywhere, but also it certainly has, got a, it certainly has a price point that's higher than, than most foods. So your new paper suggests that, that these can be gotten from food sources. Um, why don't we pick one category of cannabinoid and talk about the food sources that it is present in? Okay. Well, we could start off uh, with CB1. Uh, So I'm sure that many of the listeners are interested in what uh, plants outside of cannabis might have similar effects. Uh, Actually, it's a short list there. Um, So if we look at CB1, which is generally of most interest to most people, um, way back about uh, 2000, I was interested in the possibility of looking at uh, some other plants that affected the CB1 receptor like THC does. Um, We looked at uh, Salvia divinorum, and it's sort of a long story, but... um, we were interested in salvinorin A, which was clearly the most active molecule in that plant. Uh, and we didn't get any binding to the CB1 receptor. But interestingly, uh, there was some something else in the extract of the plant that seemed to work at that receptor. Along uh, about that time, it was discovered that salvinorin A works on another receptor called the kappa opioid receptor, um, and that its activity uh, seemed to derive from that. Um, subsequently, though, some other people looked at salvia again, and there is a relationship there that uh, still is being worked out. Now, another one that uh, might be quite odd to people uh, is the common carrot, uh, Dacus carota. It actually has a substance in it called felcarinol, and uh, this actually seems to have an antagonistic effect uh, on the CB1 receptor. Um, 
Now, that's odd. What would it do? Well, most CB1 antagonists would reduce hunger and uh, produce uh, some other effects uh, of that sort. But the main importance of this molecule is that if one were handling carrots at the same time that there was histamine around, uh, it's possible they'd get an allergic reaction. Now, uh, as a doctor, I don't remember a lot of people getting a rash from carrots, but um, you know, this is a possibility. Um, more interesting, I think, is uh, another plant that may stimulate the CB1 receptor, and this is Piper methysticum, uh, better known as kava. Now, kava is an interesting uh, substance. Um, this is made from a root of a plant that grows in the South Seas, so it's common in Polynesia. Uh, and this is pounded and mixed with water, and it makes a gluey uh, sort of drink that is used uh, as a method of relaxation. Uh, typically, it doesn't have alcohol. Um, and uh, we had an idea in the past of how this worked on a different set of receptors called GABA. But uh, it turns out that a few years back, it was noted that one component of it called yanganin uh, seems to work on the CB1 receptor. And additionally, in a traditional dose of kava, there may be enough to really affect things. So occasionally, people will say that they feel high in relation to kava, not just relaxed. Um, but uh, again, this is a relatively recent discovery and needs to um, be examined more thoroughly. And I'll mention one other in this category. Um, and this is an unusual one also. Uh, this is in liverworts. This is a kind of primitive plant. Um, there are two that have been described, uh, the uh, one from Japan and one from New Zealand. The one from New Zealand is called Radula marginata. And um, these particular liverworts have two substances in them that look like cannabinoids. One is called paratetanine and the other paratetaninic acid. Um, and uh, this was originally described about 20 years ago. And uh, the author said, well, the, they called them cannabinoids. But interestingly, at that time, they didn't test them for activity. Recently, one of my colleagues, uh, Jörg Gerch in Switzerland, has confirmed that uh, these do act on the CB1 receptor. Unfortunately, his paper is not yet published, and so we can't give more details. I will say this, though. Um, in relation to these plants, there are some uh, trip reports that people will find on the internet, and they're odd because some people say that they really got high from smoking this material, and others would say that it didn't do anything. Um, so I'm sh not sure I can recommend that people experiment with this. It's it's not necessarily healthy to try and smoke liverwort, <laughs> um, but uh, hopefully we'll have more details soon on on that. So th 
that's one category. So let's let's unpack two of those. So, um, uh, you know, the, the salvia is around, but hard to get for some folks. But carrot and kava are both really common. Uh, you know, carrot you can just buy at any grocery store, and the kava kava you can get at most herbalists. I've I've got a a, a tincture of kava right here on my desk, and and when I take it, it does um, have a relaxing effect effect to my human. I feel a certain amount of muscle muscle relaxant and a little less care in the world. Um, but I, you know, I don't get that from eating carrots. So um, how can we think about the, the right manner uh, to ingest? And, and how does the, the normal person know the volume? Or is it just simply, hey, you know, eat more carrots and make yourself some kava kava tea occasionally, and you're going in the right direction? How, how can this help a common person to help their ECS using these? Right. Well, uh, let's go to the carrot first of all. I would remind uh, listeners that actually this is uh, antagonistic at the CB1 receptor, so no one's going to get high from carrots. Uh, similarly, um, it's really unclear whether uh, this falcarinol is active orally. We don't know if it gets into the brain. I've never heard of anyone uh, eating a carrot and having it reduce their hunger. Additionally, carrots are pretty high in a glycemic index. They have a lot of sugar in them, the way they've been bred in uh, modern times. So I'm not sure it's a diet food either. Um, so certainly the person that's looking for um, uh, legal highs shouldn't go in that direction. With the kava, what is uh, a normal dose? Well, um, with a tincture, I think people would just go with the directions on the bottle. Uh, if they're making it themselves from the root, um, it probably shouldn't be too much. The stuff is pretty nasty to drink, uh, which is one reason that it's better in capsules or as a tincture. Um, but um, again, I have it on good authority uh, from Alessia Legresti, the author of the original article, that uh, she does think that most strains of uh, the uh, kava do have a significant amount of yanganin in them. Um, if someone suffers from anxiety or just needed it periodically, like to take a test or go to court, um, I think that kava is usually uh, a good safe anti-anxiety agent. Um, there were concerns about it in the past in relation to possible liver damage, but that was related to one particular preparation uh, that's not commercially available now. And, um, uh, you know, this has a long history of safe use in Polynesia. Right on. I, I think that the, the most important part I got out of that is that just because we're talking about food sources doesn't necessarily mean you just eat this stuff and your ECS is going to be in better shape. It, it's, it's more about um, these are some suggestions of places that you could continue your personal research to find out which of these might be better for you and determine the, um, the right amount for you to take so so what we're not saying is is you know this is just plug and play what we are saying is that uh, these are some doors that are being opened by your research that shows that there are components in these plants that we need to figure out how best to introduce to our body does that sound like a good summary 
Ah, uh, yeah, that's a great point. Um, and and so again, it's uh, to me maybe not the best place to start with CB1, but it, it usually is. Um, the most interesting to people uh, being the psychoactive receptor. Uh, you know, in fact, we may do better in this regard looking at some of the other plants uh, for their effects. Uh, so uh, maybe we can transition into those. Why don't we go ahead and take our first break first because I'm excited to talk about uh, CBG from food and I think that's going to take us a little bit. So let's take a short commercial break and be right back. You are listening to the Gondrepreneur Podcast. Marketing and brand agencies can be really unhelpful sometimes. I mean, you pay them and you have meetings, but there doesn't always seem to be real value created. Sure, they may make you a logo or a website and you talk about the image your company wants to project, but that is not always reflected in the bottom line in the form of actual revenue. For a lot of startups, everything has got to feed the bottom line just so they can survive. That's what blunt branding does. They feed your bottom line. Blunt is very different from other agencies because their principals, Kirsten Nelson and Anthony Garcia, are experts in psychological marketing. For example, they don't just write copy for your website. They write copy that includes hooks and triggers for every Myers-Briggs personality type. Most copywriters tend to write only for people who think like them. Blunt branding does better than that. They reach all your potential customers. In fact, if there is a certain kind of customer that you don't want, say, argumentative folks, Blunt will write you copy that attracts everyone else, but will tend to repel the kind of customer that gives you grief. I'm not kidding. The strategy is used by their attorney clients all the time. Your brand is much more than a logo. You see, most customers wait for some company to wow them with something more than they came shopping for, especially when there are so many options, right? They're looking for a brand to anticipate their questions or solve their problems or just make them feel seen, heard, and valued. I know that can sound corny, but we all know that we buy from the companies we feel most engaged with, and blunt branding will get them climbing over your competitors to get to you. If you cannot risk business failure, you should be working with a marketing team who understands that their goal is not just to make you pretty, but to directly increase your sales success too. Go to BluntBranding.com to find out more. Welcome back. You are listening to the Gondrepreneur.com podcast. I'm your host, Shango Lose, and our guest this week is neurologist and cannabis researcher, Dr. Ethan Russo. So before the break, we were talking about uh, different food sources uh, that could work with the CB1 receptor uh, to help manage your endocannabinoid system. And we're ready to move on from there to talk about CBG, uh, cannabigerol. And, um, you know, Hector, um, Ethan, I understand that you have found uh, food sources for that, or maybe just one. Uh, your paper talks about a flowering plant in southern Africa. Uh, is that something that we can even get in the United States? Oh, boy, it's tough. Um, yeah, this is an odd one. Um, you know, again, traditionally, it's been thought that cannabis was the only source of cannabinoids. Um, but it's turning out not to be true, and that was the reason for writing this article. Um, actually, more than 30 years ago, there was an obscure article uh, written in German 
about finding cannabigerol, one of the um, so-called minor cannabinoids of cannabis, in uh, this flower from southern Africa. It's called Helichrysum umbraculigerum. And although it is, uh, I understand, a common roadside uh, plant in South Africa, um, they've got very strict laws um, about intellectual property uh, in South Africa. Um, and it, it's not something that you'll find uh, commercially. I'm happy to say that we have legally obtained a supply of this um, and um, aim to investigate it further. What the original article said was that um, uh, two cannabinoids, cannabigerol, um, which is the decarboxylated form, it's lost its CO2, and its precursor, the cannabigerolic acid, um, uh, the acid cannabinoid, were found in this uh, flowering plant. Unfortunately, uh, the original article never stated the concentration. So the issue is, is there a significant amount of these chemicals uh, in this plant, and could it possibly be a non-cannabis source for cannabigerol? So that's the question. Um, unfortunately, we don't have the answer yet. We've just procured uh, the plant, and uh, we'll be doing the uh, biochemical assays to try and answer that question. Right. But um, you know, this it it raises a bunch of other issues. Uh, in most countries, this is not a big deal. Uh, cannabigerol is not a scheduled compound, meaning it's not forbidden. Um, but in the U.S., uh, it is uh, would be considered illegal. And so now all of a sudden you may have a situation of uh, this attractive flower could be illegal to grow in the U.S. We just don't know uh, what will happen with that. Um, but it's just another example of quirks in the law uh, you know, unfortunately, in my opinion, um, these laws are not uh, subject to uh, the teachings of science. Um, in this instance, it's guilt by association. <laughs> Cannabigerol happens to be produced uh, by the cannabis plant, and I'm not sure that legislators necessarily care whether it appears in another plant that happens to have a pretty flower and have other purposes. It's like getting blamed for something that your cousin did. <laughs> yeah, you bet. All right. So then, so since we're not sure if um, we can even get our hands on it, let's move right along to uh, anti-inflammatories. So you've got a nice list of foods where we can get some uh, carophylline. Um, so what are those foods and, and um, what's the best way to go about enjoying them? Yeah, first, there's just a little background. Uh, caryophylline is what's called a sesquiterpenoid. Uh, that means it's a 15-carbon terpenoid. Um, it's got so, sort of a balsamic aroma. Um, and uh, people may think they're unfamiliar with this, but I bet they are, actually, because it is one of the components of black pepper and is responsible for some of its its taste and its effects. Um, uh, but um, caryophylline um, uh, appears in a bunch of different uh, different plants, um, and uh, it's not just uh, black pepper, but uh, 
many others. Um, a couple others that you mentioned in your paper are chili peppers and ginger and uh, euphorbia, which I was surprised. It must be a different. It's probably a different euphorbia than is growing in my yard. Well, well, we need to back up a little bit. Actually, uh, caryophylline uh, beyond cannabis and the black pepper is going to be in cloves. It's going to be in uh, hops uh, and uh, Melissa, lemon balm. Um, now, the importance of this is um, about 10 years ago, again, your Gerch in Switzerland discovered that caryophylline is a CB2 agonist. So to reiterate, CB2 is the non-psychoactive receptor um, that's important in uh, treating inflammation and pain. So uh, caryophylline, which happens to be in cannabis also, uh, is at once a terpenoid and a cannabinoid in its own right. Uh, and it was well established long before we knew it had this effect on CB2 that caryophylline is a very effective uh, agent in treating inflammation and pain. Um, the copaiba balsam uh, Copaiba is a tree in South America, and its sap, which has a lot of caryophylline in it, has been used traditionally by indigenous groups and other people uh, in South America to treat wounds, uh, arthritis, and things of this sort. Um, but uh, certainly, this is one instance where uh, if you had steak au poivre, um, you have a good intake of black pepper, you may be positively modulating your endocannabinoid system. So if anybody uh, was thinking that there aren't accessible agents uh, that could help tune things up with respect to the ECS, here is a good example. Is black pepper, so is it, in this case, this is one of the cases where it is appropriate for us to just simply eat it, um, where we don't necessarily have to make a, a, a tea or a tincture or something like that to make it bioavailable. We can simply just get it, you know, just eat it and our body will process it and it will support the ECS. Yeah, I believe that's true. I mean, that doesn't mean that everybody has to have a huge amount, but uh, I'm one of those people that tends to put black pepper on everything. Um, and I did that long before I knew uh, that it might be helping me. Right on. And so, now, oh, go ahead. Yeah, black pepper uh, is really interesting because that's not the only effect it has on the ECS. Um, it also uh, affects uh, another uh, related system that's called the TRIP-V1. That's a transient receptor potential vanilloid 1. Um, this is also considered part of the endocannabinoid system. Uh, it's going to be most familiar to people from the other kind of pepper, uh, red pepper, capsaicin, the chili peppers. Capsaicin is a trip v1 agonist um, and so it's famous or infamous for its burning sensation what's interesting about the trip v1 receptor is although some of the agents that stimulate it like capsaicin burn um, that burn goes away after a while uh, because the the receptor becomes desensitized on um, this can be used to advantage in treating pain um, people may have seen on TV ads for 
ointments that have uh, capsaicin in them and they're used to treat pain, particularly nerve-based pain. For example, if someone has diabetic neuropathy, a burning pain uh, in the extremities, if they apply this kind of ointment with capsaicin in it, uh, say three times a day over a period of time, it can actually uh, reduce the pain. It's, it's very cumbersome to do, um, but it can be effective. Now, interestingly, there are other uh, things that do this. Um, ginger uh, has uh, uh, trip V1 agonists in it, uh, and again, uh, black pepper. Uh, so uh, this is a situation. We're not sure how much of this gets absorbed uh, and whether just eating foods that are rich in trip V1 agonists uh, will help with, say, arthritic pain. Uh, but uh, we do know, and this is odd, um, that uh, people who have uh, inflammation of the gut, say with irritable bowel, uh, sometimes will benefit from uh, regular use of spicy food, particularly uh, regular use of chili peppers. And um, people are well aware that in certain cuisines, say India, Southeast Asia, the chilies are in almost everything. And uh, this may be one of the reasons. I'm starting to get the idea that this research is pretty bleeding edge. You know, we, we're talking about a lot of these different examples, but, um, you know, how to get it into our body and in what um, amounts and, and what the exact effect seems to be uh, open to discussion and additional research. So it sounds like, you know, not only do we want to look more into these these examples of food sources, um, but but we also don't entirely know how best to get them into our endocannabinoid system. So so we're kind of at the beginning of this this new family of research. That's absolutely true. Um, you know, I'm very excited about this. There is work yet to be done. Um, like anything, particularly uh, dietary, you would not want to make it uh, your sole focus uh, by any means. And um, uh, with certain of these foods, your body's going to rebel if there's too much. Um, uh, so that would be one signal. Um, but there, there actually are other areas where we can give some guidelines um, on uh, how to use food to opt optimize the ECS. So we haven't heard uh, what may be the best part yet. Uh, meaning meaning um, that the research hasn't been done yet or, or that we just haven't gotten to that point in your paper yet? Uh, the latter. So I, I think we've got another chapter coming up here that uh, might be more helpful on a practical level for people. Right on. I follow what you're saying. So one of the things that uh, struck me was I was uh, in your paper, you're talking about um, additional CB2 agents that are available to us. And they're right at the top is echinacea. And, and, and in one way, it surprised me to see echinacea there because, you know, we, we take echinacea to get rid of our, our or to postpone our colds all the time. But I never really considered it something that was going to be acting on 
upon the endocannabinoid system. So I've got a two-part question. Um, number one, um, to what degree or, or in what is the mechanism for echinacea to act upon our ECS? And you know, we've been, we've been using this plant for thousands of years. Um, how do we understand that humans came across uh, using these plants? Was it simply by trial and error? Well, that's interesting. Um, first of all, for people that aren't familiar with it, echinacea, uh, usually it's the root that's used, and this is a Native American plant. So how Native Americans uh, discovered this uh, is hard to say. It could have been empirical, uh, you know, that they were looking for food and um, uh, someone tried this. Um, you know, it has an unusual effect. It has a sort of local anesthetic effect in the throat. And somebody may have uh, tried to eat this uh, in a moment of hunger and discovered that it had this local anesthetic effect when they had a cold. And one thing leads to another. I wouldn't rule out that some of this could have been learned by divination. Um, although less common in North America, certainly in South America, many uh, useful medicinal plants are discovered uh, by use of uh, ayahuasca, the vine of the soul, uh, and asking the question, uh, what plant do I need to take care of this uh, ailment? Uh, in this instance, uh, I think uh, we may never know uh, how uh, people happened uh, along this, this knowledge. Well... I, I have to follow up on that one. <laughs> so, so to be to be discovered via divination using ayahuasca, um, I, I think that what you're pointing at is that when the when the person would intake the ayahuasca, this would open up their energy centers to be able to to get information from the surrounding plants, and somehow the plants would let the person know that they should look towards this plant. Is is that what you're suggesting? Yeah, it is. That's and awesome. I, I this, <laughs> That's great. Uh, this may go far beyond uh, the credence of many of our listeners, but I, I've seen it happen in South America, and I wouldn't rule out uh, that the same happened in North America among the indigenous peoples. Um, we modern humans have largely lost uh, this capability, um, but either through happenstance or experimentation, it was discovered uh, by people that uh, echinacea root um, had useful properties um, in uh, re reducing not just the pain of a sore throat, but also in shortening uh, the duration of uh, this kind of illness. Um, as it turns out, though, uh, this is an agent that works on CB2, and so it may have a lot more applicability medicinally than just trying to shorten the duration of your cold. Um, CB2 agents, again, uh, seem to be very useful in reducing inflammation and also uh, reduce fibrosis. Fibrosis is scar tissue. Let's give one example. Um, we have an epidemic of hepatitis C that leads to scarring, fibrosis of the liver. Um, and a CB2 agent uh, taken regularly could uh, help prevent that. Uh, so 
this is a real possibility. Additionally, uh, these CB2 agents may be useful in autoimmune diseases, but um, we don't know uh, yet whether um, that's the case. Um, so again, this is one of those areas that, uh, although it's tantalizing, we've got at this point many more questions than answers. Well, uh, you're right. It is tantalizing. And before we go to the commercial break, I'm, I'm going to follow up with one more question about uh, the divination aspect of it. You know, uh, in the uh, introduction, I mentioned that you that you did a sabbatical in Peru with the indigenous people studying their healing botany. And I'm sure that was really interesting. And looking at the list of books that you had written, I wish I had it in front of me, but, but I believe that you wrote a book about your experience in Peru. If, if if I go and pick up that book, do you write about divination in that book? Because I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, which is, you know, today's not the place, but but is that, is, would those thoughts be in that book? Uh, yeah, the book I wrote um, uh, called The Last Sorcerer, Echoes of the Rainforest is actually a work of fiction. And oh. yes, it does uh, discuss divination. Um, but um, yeah, that, that was a fictional account. All right, on. Very good. So we're going to take another short break, and then we're going to talk uh, some more about this, about how to support your endocannabinoid system with common foods. We'll be right back. You are listening to the Gontrepreneur.com podcast. The Gontrepreneur podcast is listened to by tens of thousands of cannabis entrepreneurs and enthusiasts every single week. These folks are most likely your target customers, and we'd like to introduce you to each other. Our down-to-earth and information-rich commercial breaks can deliver your message to the cannabis business community and others who just find relief in getting high. If you want to reach out and connect with our audience in the most personal way that we can offer, go ahead and drop us an email at grow at and we can talk about you becoming a commercial sponsor of the podcast. Thanks for listening and being part of the Gontrepreneur family. Now back to the show. Welcome back. You are listening to the Gontrepreneur.com podcast. I'm your host, Shango Lose, and our guest this week is neurologist and cannabis researcher, Dr. Ethan Russo. So Ethan, you know, we were talking about some of the things that are, are more common that folks could eat that could um, help their endocannabinoid system. And one of the things that you mentioned in your paper that I actually have qu quite often is galanga root. And in the same category is apples and blackberries. And they all contain the, the flavonoid uh, camphorol, which can be taken to boost uh, serum AEA levels. But I got to admit, I don't actually really know what AEA levels are and, and why that's a benefit. So why don't you break that out a little bit for us? Sure. Uh, so AEA is uh, just uh, short uh, for anandamide. Uh, so the, the full name of anandamide is ethanolamine. And um, again, it's uh, that first discovered endogenous cannabinoid uh, that works on the CB1 and CB2 receptors. Um, so uh, AEA levels in the body are regulated uh, by uh, an enzyme that breaks it down called FA. That's F-A-A-H, fatty acid amidohydrolase. And um, uh, there are actually substances available in nature that inhibit FA. FA inhibitors, uh, if they're around, will boost anandamide 
uh, by preventing its breakdown. So it'd sort of be analogous to what uh, an SSRI antidepressant does with serotonin, say um, uh, Prozac, for example. Uh, but in this instance, working to boost anandamide levels. Um, the substance you mentioned, camphorol, is in galanga root, um, which is used in, say, Indonesian cooking. Um, but more commonly, particularly here in the Northwest, would be apples and blackberries. We've got tons of them. Um, so there's small amounts of camphorol uh, in, in those. And it may be that uh, if you've got a good intake of that, your apple pie or blackberry pie uh, may inhibit the breakdown of anandamide and uh, give you a boost that way. It's uh, really possible. Anandamide is pretty popular. Are there any other foods that, that we should be aware of that's got uh, anandamide in it? Uh, well, yeah. The problem is, yes, there is, and uh, the the most obvious example is a recent discovery that that truffle, specifically the black truffle, Tuber melanosporum, actually contains anandamide. Anandamide uh, normally isn't present in plants, but then I have to remind the listeners that fungi are no longer considered plants. <laughs> uh, they're actually more like animals than plants, and they, they're in a group of their own um, at this point. Um, but the way that um, the, the uh, truffles use the, the anandamide is a little bit different. Um, they develop more anandamide as they get darker in color. It has to do with uh, the production of melanin, the, the dark pigment uh, that makes the truffles black uh, or um, uh, produce uh, darker skin. Uh, as in tanning or in uh, darker races. Um, so this is interesting. The problem is that it's not enough to eat anandamide. Uh, unfortunately, uh, for our purposes, even if you had access to a bunch of truffles, the anandamide in them would be broken down um, in your digestive tract before you had a chance to get it absorbed out into the body. So it may be a better strategy to use the galangal um, or the uh, apples and uh, blackberries to inhibit the the breakdown of anandamide and increase its uh, amount in the body that way. Yeah, that makes a lot of um, sense. Chances are the black truffle taro chips that I have in my kitchen are probably not going to be the best source either. Uh, no, but if you enjoy them, have at it. <laughs> you know, one of the things that uh, jumped out at me uh, in the paper was you're pointing out that chocolate does not have cannabinoids, as is commonly thought, but there actually are other benefits. What are those other benefits? Right. So uh, just to reiterate, there are no um, – no endocannabinoids in chocolate. However, it may have uh, the same benefit. Uh, it has other health benefits, uh, particularly if it's not sugar-laden. Uh, but it contains a couple of uh, ingredients uh, called ethanolamines um, that are FA inhibitors. So when someone eats chocolate regularly, they may be boosting their anandamide level that way. So it's an indirect effect rather than a direct one. Right on. That makes sense. 
So let's finish up with prebiotics and probiotics. You know, we, we, we hear a lot about probiotics in the media as well as, you know, in growing our gardens. But in this uh, application, it's, it's different. What, do you, what are the prebiotics and probiotics that are coming from food sources that we should be aware of? Sure. Well, first, let's define some terms. Probiotics are probably more familiar to people, but uh, won't be familiar to everyone. Probiotics are actually um, bacteria that are native to our gut. These are beneficial bacteria. If you didn't have any, chances are you couldn't survive. Um, but they actually have a key role in digestion and uh, prevention of disease. Now, these are going to be most familiar to people in the form of, uh, of yogurt. So, lactobacilli um, uh, and uh, also bifidobacteria. Um, you know, we have this unfortunate concept in our society that bacteria are a bad thing. Uh, we couldn't survive without them. Uh, and like anything else, they're good bacteria and bad bacteria. In, in this particular instance, the good bacteria help prevent diseases caused by the bad bacteria. You hear a lot about E. coli epidemics. One of the ways to stem uh, that kind of affliction is uh, by having a healthy gut with the right bacteria. So the first thing to understand is that uh, we can supplement this uh, by having yogurt in our diet um, or um, people that uh, uh, don't uh, use dairy products could uh, get some of the same effects with uh, kefir uh, or other fermented uh, foods, particularly things like uh, sauerkraut uh, or lacto-fermented vegetables. Um, they can be made without uh, any dairy products, uh, just through natural fermentation. These lactobacilli are in nature naturally. Uh, sourdough uh, would have these as well. Um, and these are just uh, absolutely key to health. Now, the other side of the coin is prebiotics. Prebiotics are vegetables that feed the probiotics, the good bacteria. Uh, now, some of these are going to be quite familiar and others not so much. The familiar ones would be the Leaceae. These are members of the onion family. So, your common onion, garlic, leeks, um, and... Um, this is another one of those situations. I put onions in almost everything, uh, and it's a very uh, healthy food in terms of feeding the good gut bacteria. But there are many others um, that also have this effect, um, particularly things that um, contain um, a chemical called inulin or other fructooligosaccharides. Uh, that's a mouthful, so let's just call them FOS for short. These would include things like um, Acacia Senegal, gum Arabic, um, uh, and some less familiar foods, chicory root, uh, Jerusalem artichokes or sunchokes, and things like dandelion greens and burdock root. Burdock is quite popular. Um, in the Far East, uh, probably much less familiar to uh, folks in the West. But any of these foods, again, are just dynamite in terms of being feedstock for the beneficial bacteria. Um, 
And although you can't always get dandelion grains at the market, a lot of these things are available uh, in capsule form as supplements. Um, the acacia fiber, which is particularly good for people with gut problems, um, is available as a commercial product uh, online and uh, can do wonders for people with, say, irritable bowel syndrome. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things I like about the prebiotics and probiotics section is that we have finally hit on something that people can really uh, apply themselves to get it in their hands on. I mean, it sounds like a lot of the prebiotics are, are uh, plants that we can wildcraft and many of the probiotics. I mean, heck, I've got um, I've got a a. a, a a crock going, making um, some sauerkraut right now that is dairy free. And, you know, so, oh, look, I'm making a probiotic that is helpful for my endocannabinoid system. And so um, I think it's really helpful to, to be able to uh, focus in on something that we can actually do that's tangible to help ourselves. And, and that kind of leads me to where I want to summarize here as we, as we come to the end of the show. It sounds like you know, we, we've talked about a lot of different plants today, and, and we know varying amounts about them. And so, and so it sounds like research is taking place, and it's very promising, and sounds like it would be a great field for people interested in the endocannabinoid research to go into, and that it's also a good field for just like the simple citizen scientist to get into the research and learn more and tell your friends and certainly tell patients. But to, to, to cap us off for the day, you know, in retrospect, looking at all of these different options, what would you just tell a friend, you know, over dinner would be three or four foods that they could find relatively easily that would help them out and would be a great place to start? Just like add these to your diet and you're going to be better than without them. Uh, yeah, it's great to have the opportunity to, uh, for a change, uh, give people practical advice in this regard. Uh, but I would certainly encourage people uh, to uh, incorporate sauerkraut in their diet. Other lacto-fermented foods like naturally uh, fermented uh, pickles. Um, kimchi uh, is excellent in this regard on the Korean section of the supermarket. Um, and then uh, again, the Aliaceae, the uh, onions, garlic, leeks, and uh, particularly people with gut problems, uh, the Acacia Senegal gum Arabic. Um, fiber is uh, excellent uh, in helping to treat that kind of problem. Fantastic. That's now everybody has a, a, a solid to-do list. So, uh, so Ethan, I know that the show has gone longer than I than I asked for your time today. So I'm going to wrap up now. But thank you so much for being on the show and introducing us to this new area of research that we can all get excited about and and, and start learning more for ourselves. Thank you for the opportunity. Dr. Ethan Russo is an internationally beloved neurologist and cannabis researcher, currently medical director at Phytex. To find out more about Dr. Russo, you can go to phytex.com, that's P-H-Y-T-E-C-S, or simply search his name, Russo, R-U-S-S-O, on researchgate.net and start reading his research. If you want a copy of the article we are talking about today, you can email him directly. Uh, it's still out um, 
uh, for sale right now. So we're not able to post it on the website just yet. But if you want to email him at Ethan Russo, E-T-H-A-N-R-U-S-S-O, at Comcast.net, um, he will send it to you personally. Also, though, remember that uh, Dr. Russo is an active international traveler, and so don't expect an immediate response. You can find more episodes of the Gondrepreneur.com podcast in the podcast section and also in the Apple iTunes store. On the Gondrepreneur.com website, you will find the latest cannabis news, product reviews, and cannabis jobs updated daily, along with transcriptions of this podcast. You can also download the Gondrepreneur.com app in the iTunes and Google Play shops. For info on me and where I will be speaking, you can go to shangolos.com. Do you have a company that wants to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email grow at gontrepreneur.com to find out how. Today's show was produced by Michael Rowe. I'm your host, Shango Lose.